0: Ultimately we know there's only one enemy, and they're up the road there in Westminster, so we have to get together. All the attacks, they're coming for all of us, so we have to stand firm, stand together and smash the government. The
1: Workers United will never be defeated. The workers united will
0: never be defeated. No way, no and never. Was the members view about the possibility of so-called loan working in any of these holes
2: the effect was huge again particularly as walmart was trying to reach some more upscale customers expand into urban areas this had a real detrimental effect on their ability to do those things
3: i think it's the characters if they come fully formed and you're really wide open to what's going on for them at that moment that's what people don't do. That's, the, that's a lot of what doesn't happen in the first, second, and third drafts.
4: You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On this week's show, hundreds of thousands of nurses, teachers, and transit workers have taken to the streets in the UK for living wages and against privatization of public services. Work Week Radio has that report. Then, The Secret Art of Negotiation... Why is it an art and not a science? On the latest Union Days, a UK based podcast that's returning from hiatus. From the Reinventing Solidarity podcast, despite Walmart's decade long effort at reforms, the average full time worker there earns just under $32,000 a year. Author Rick Wartzman explores what this suggests about the systemic failures of capitalism in the 21st century. On Writing Podcast host Greg Owinsky talks to screenwriter Tony Gilroy, who's currently the showrunner and executive producer of the Star Wars series Andor. Gilroy talks about how his music career influenced his work as a screenwriter, why empathy is the key to imagination, and the similarities between being a showrunner and a dairy farmer. We wrap up this week's show with a poem by Catherine Paulson Wood from the Radical Songbook podcast and from Labor History and Two, today known in Great Britain as the Battle of Salt Lake Gate. That's all coming up on this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. And if you like what you hear, take a moment, subscribe, and share the show. It's what we call Sonic Solidarity. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly.
0: This is KPOO San Francisco at 89.5 FM and kpoo.com on the internet. Next is Work Week.
1: to stone. If you're living underneath the bridge, man, all roads lead to home. I got a hidden flask. I'm paid in cash. Got a cross above my bed. You know, I hitchhiked from Chicago and a man walks up and said, this is a union
0: town, a union town. This is Steve Zelzer with Workweek. First, we start with the mass strike wave hitting Britain. Hundreds of thousands of nurses, teachers, and transit workers are taking to the streets for living wages and against privatization of public services. Here are some of their voices.
1: When teachers pay is under attack, what do we do? Stand up, fight back! Twenty teachers pay is under attack, what do we do? Stand up, fight back! It feels a lot like the
5: sort of heads of universities see students as money in and lecturers and educational resources as money out, so they've got more and more people who have precarious contracts and aren't paid like prep and Mark teaching huge modules, which is, you know, it's rubbish for the students, it's rubbish for the workers, and you can't build a future on that. Mm -hmm. You're moving from job to job, uni to uni, and it's it's impossible to sort of
3: survive really. I've only been in the profession for three years but already how the cuts are affecting teachers and the students in our schools is so evident and I have friends who have already, that I've trained with, that are already no longer in teaching and that's because of how we see our jobs being affected. As a non-core subject the concern is that we will get less and less funding because we have such an issue with retention we have less and less teachers who are able to teach the subjects non-specialists then have to start to teach languages that they may not be a specialist in and it all has a knock-on effect on the quality of education that our kids are getting. How our work-life balance is affected as well.
0: The TAs have disappeared, so we are replacing that well, however we can. Extra work for social work that has been cut as well. So yeah, we are not teaching anymore. We are doing firefighting in the classroom the whole time. Our kids at school, who might identify as LGBT+, haven't got access to proper counsellors and mental health workers because of that lack of funding. So that is affecting their well-being, it's affecting their ability to make progress in their lessons. Today is the start of LGBT Plus History Month as well. This year is 20 years since the repeal of Section 28, when we couldn't do these kind of things in schools. That's why I wear this T-shirt about an inclusive curriculum, because it's important that everybody is included.
1: Education matters! Support our schools! Education matters! Support our schools! Education matters! Support our schools!
3: Our
0: struggle is the school struggle as a a whole system. That's why uh, our head teacher is supportive. That's why a lot of head teachers are supportive.
1: Workload is too much. And then resource, we need resource for the children funding for the, for the school, so if you can see, it's
5: just all done. You pay these huge fees as a student, and you know the heads of a lot of unis are making a lot of money, but it doesn't filter down. You're like, where are the fees going? Why are lecturers not being paid more? Why are, you know, sometimes you're arguing for resources to do teaching and do innovative things in classes.
0: As a civil servant, it's about um, several years of below inflation pay rises. It's about risk to our pensions, which we're paying 2%. Uh, more pension contributions than we should be, and no changes to redundancy terms. The government uh, last year threatened 90,000 job cuts. They did pause that for a while, but we are expecting uh, more threats of job cuts uh, next year. Ultimately, we know there's only one enemy, and they're up the road there in Westminster, so we have to get together. All the attacks, they're coming for all of us, so we have to stand firm, stand together,
1: and smash the government.
0: is Union Days. Stories from a Union scrapbook. For 30 years, the bread and butter of my work was negotiation. So, how to sum up the art, the practice, the performance of negotiation? It's not easy. And believe me, I'm leaving out much more than I've included. In the end, I think it's all about the relationship. That's what makes it tick. Can you trust the person sat across the table from you? And if you can't trust them entirely, can you at least have an honest conversation? And if you can't do either of those things, what can you do to put yourself in a position where you can? I think I will always believe that the only true prism through which to understand negotiation is power. The balance of power between all the parties involved. But real power is more than just a crude calculation of relative strength. I mean, if we get into a scrap, a dispute, then the dynamics change. You want to win. You need to win the room for manoeuvre and compromise constricts dramatically while the stakes expand in direct proportion. The London Underground Northern Line, that's the black one, runs up through southwest London in a fairly straight line, Tooting, Balham, Clapham, and then, just after Clapham North, the line kinks. Above ground, the A3 widens into the broad sweep of Clapham Road as it heads up towards the Stockwell Roundabout. The diversion was necessary... So it's been said to avoid an old burial ground, long disused but still toxic, by the time the tunnelers got to work in the 1920s. Decades later, two contractors clambered down a manhole shaft without the means to check whether the air was breathable at the bottom, still less the ability to stay alive if it wasn't. Tragically, it wasn't. Manhole covers were padlocked shut, and there was a standoff about what would constitute a safe system of work between us and the employer. No way, no, and never was the member's view about the possibility of so called lone working in any of these holes. That is to say, there would always need to be at least two people attending any job that required unlocking the manhole cover and going down the steps. Oh, and by the way, we also wanted the lab report into the atmospheric conditions before we'd even think about allowing anyone. Anywhere near there. You tell them! I was emphatically instructed. No acceptance of these preconditions. No negotiation. But there was something that could be done, even in the absence of two-person working and the lab report. An accident investigation into a similar recent tragedy in the US generated a 10-point checklist for safe working in confined spaces, just like working at the bottom of a manhole. So... There was a protocol in place, at least theoretically. And access was indeed needed to these sites. At the meeting, my inflexibility was complete. In the nicest possible way, I absolutely told them so. Specifically because I think of the operational need and the genuine availability of a workaround, this had all the impact of a spit in the rain. The employer knew it was a vacuous position and had a strong incentive not to be diverted. There wasn't even a kickback from our reps when I reported back the outrageous intransigence of the employer. Which kind of shows the employer's judgment was right on this occasion. I was new in the job, so it taught me a useful lesson about leadership, judgment and giving yourself room for manoeuvre. This has been Union Days, scenes from a union scrapbook with me, Simon Sapper. Music is by Scott Holmes, production by Makes You Think. Subscribe, rate and review on the podcast platform of your choice. You can email the show at info at Thanks for listening.
6: Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labour Forum and the School of Labour and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. I'm very pleased to welcome Rick Wartzman to this New Labor Forum event to discuss his new book, his fifth book, published at the end of last year called Still Broke, Walmart's Remarkable Transformation and the Limits of Socially Conscious Capitalism. So turning to the book, and thank you for being here, Rick. You tell the history of the both the, the two corporate campaigns, Walmart Watch, which was funded by SEIU, and yeah. the UFCW's Wake Up Walmart campaign, and that both of those followed earlier efforts to actually do conventional union organizing at Walmart, efforts that were strenuously resisted by Walmart and right. failed miserably. And so then they turned to what um, one of the people you quote in the book called the Air War, which, you know, from the, the ground War and started doing propaganda campaigns, criticizing Walmart. And because these campaigns did have an impact, they reached a lot of people and Walmart developed a very bad reputation, right? And especially among progressives, but to some extent in the wider public, even including their longtime customer base. So one explanation for this is that the unions are sort of get some of the credit. Is it, do you think that's true or what how do you look at that whole question
2: when you cut to 2015 when for the first time Walmart raised its starting pay, you know, across the company. I, obviously, look starting wages at Walmart in 2015 weren't the same as when Sam Walton ran the stores in the 60s, the market had bid up wages over time and minimum wage laws, even even very slowly at the federal level, but even at state and local level, right, wages had had gone up. But they had never instituted an across-the-board wage increase. So why did they do it? I think it was a whole bunch of factors. There was pressure from the unions, for sure, and those early campaigns were the start of it, right? In 2005, 2006, 2007. They were brutal. I mean, they were genius. Both the SEIU and the UFCW went out. They hired a bunch of mostly very young political operatives who had worked a lot on the, the early digital sides of presidential campaigns, right? Howard Dean's campaign and others and and John Kerry's campaign and so on. And they they brought those folks in and they were extremely creative and clever and great at leaking damaging stuff to the media and yeah the effect was huge again particularly as Walmart was trying to reach some more upscale customers expand into urban areas this had a real detrimental effect on their ability to do those things Lee Scott the then CEO i think kind of paraphrasing but called it you know something like the most sophisticated you know relentless corporate campaigns because they weren't done in concert. They were separate, but simultaneous, ever waged. And I don't think that was hyperbole. I think, yes, I'd give the unions in those campaigns some credit for putting Walmart down this path. But I think the biggest reason they moved on wages at all was actually a business imperative. By 2011, there's some evidence, certainly by 2013, they had cut labor costs so deeply and were holding down labor costs so much to keep profits where they wanted them, that turnover had reached just even for retail, like epidemic proportions, right? I've heard it was as high as 200%. Some stores, there's an anecdote in the book of an executive going into a store and the turnover was 400%, right? So, you know, completely just unsustainable as a business. And what that does is it means shelves aren't stocked properly. So they had empty shelves. Stores were dirty, right? That same executive who told me about the 400% turnover went into a store, looked down and asked her colleague, oh, when did we switch to the brown floor tiles? And he said, those aren't floor tiles, that's dirt, right? The stores were dirty. It was a mess. And as a result, Walmart's sales, their same store sales were declining quarter after quarter. And so Doug McMillan, then a new CEO came in and knew he had to make some investments in their workforce, including in pay, or the business was just going to be run into the ground. And so I think it was All those pressure points, public image, all those things inside change agents, outside pressure, but also really just a a business need.
3: I flew to the moon last night. I had the place to myself, so I ate cheese and howled. Listening to On Writing, a podcast from the Writers Guild of America East. In each episode, you'll hear from the writers of your favorite films and television series.
5: Today I'm talking to Tony Gilroy, the creator, executive producer, and showrunner of the Star Wars series Andor, now airing on Disney Plus. He's also written numerous films, including The Cutting Edge, the Jason Bourne films, and Michael Clayton, which earned him Oscar and WJ nominations for original screenplay. Hello, Tony. Hello, Greg. Good to talk to you again. <laughs> nice to see you. Yes, good to see you. You've done a lot, so much stuff that has action. Obviously, Michael Clayton, not a ton of action, but a lot of intensity. But with action stuff and talking about the knowing the location, knowing the details and that stuff. How do you use and I've asked a, a couple different writer directors and, and writers of action about this, but like, how do you use action to show character? Because I think that sometimes you think. There's a there's an audience mindset or you watch these action movies and you think, okay, this is exposition and character. And now we clicked into them punching and then we'll go back to character. But how do you put that character and that stuff into your action?
3: I think it's I think that's backwards. I think it's the characters. If they come fully formed and they come fully and you're really wide open to what's going on for them at that moment. That's what people don't do. That's, the, that's a lot of what doesn't happen in the first, second, and third drafts of stuff that finally comes in at the end that makes things feel like they're so, you know, uh, what can I say? I, what's specific? I'm doing something right now. How can I just talk about this? I'm doing something today where it's leading into an action sequence, and I have a character who is coming back to the, about to take part of this place. And they're in an elevator and they're on their way to the thing. And the one character says to him, how do you know this place? And he says, I used to live here. And the idea of what that means and what it means later on in the story and the fact that you're in it, as opposed to just two dudes riding up in the elevator, strapping up, getting ready to go. Are you ready? Are you nervous? Are you ready? What's gonna be out there? Is it a trap? Is that I used to live here. And having your character be crippled for a moment by nostalgia on the at the precipice of an action sequence is I think what you're talking about. I think you have to yeah. be like a truffle pig all the time. And the truffles are the, what the people feel. And then people always don't say what they feel. So is it something that they feel that you can find a way to get out of their mouth? Uh, what's another good example? I don't think they, we, it didn't really work out, but there was a the car chase and did I, maybe I wanted to do it in Born and then I didn't do it. And I, did I do it again in Legacy? I'll give you a great example, car chase. Look at Nightcrawler. That that car chase in Nightcrawler, they shot in one night. I think we shot Born Legacy car chase for a month. God knows how long. Billions of dollars. The car chase in Nightcrawler is conceivably, arguably, better. It shot it in one night. Why is it good? It's good because Riz, Ahmed, and Jake are in the car, and there's a huge issue between them as the thing is happening. They have a real problem in the car about what's going on. And because there's something that's absolutely tense going on between them, it's so vivid. The car chase just takes on this incredibly elevated bit of energy, even though it's a very small contained thing. It's, you got to just care about these people. You got to be with these people all the time. If you don't care about, and and you know, if they're fake, you know, you know, when they go fake.
5: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, I think that makes the best action things richer when you, I guess when the person is caring about something in it, but also when we feel like they have a reason for doing it or that they're fighting through something that isn't, this is the obstacle, let's smash through it. It's I also, you get a text that your wife is leaving you right before a bank robbery. It changes the bank robbery. Yes, exactly. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I want to thank you so much.
3: All right, thanks to everybody who listened in and and thanks to the Guild. Thank you, Dana. Thank you, Jason. Thanks a lot. On Writing is a production of the Writers Guild of America East. Thank you for listening, and right on.
1: I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1971. That was the day that's known in Great Britain as the Battle of Saltley Gate. 30,000 Birmingham engineers had walked out in solidarity with a strike held by the National Union of Mine Workers. The miners were taking a stand against austerity pay. The Saltley coking works had become the epicenter in the national labor struggle. During the labor dispute, the miners union and the government had agreed that coal would only go to priority customers like hospitals, but Saltley defied the agreement and kept their gates open. A long line of trucks formed to enter the depot. The workers knew that if Saltley continued to operate, it would undermine their strike the call went out for a mass action to close the gates between 10 and 15,000 working people answered the call the evening mail described the scene with a front page story writing below trade union banners a sea of faces stretched for as far as the eye could see and there was a great roar as the gates shut for the first time since picketing began last week faced with such a crowd security workers from the depot were forced to close the gate the crowd erupted with a cheer. Arthur Scarhill, president of the Miners Union, climbed onto a roof to address the crowd, declaring, if working people are united, they can achieve anything. The victory was a turning point. A little over a week later, the government had agreed to a pay raise for the miners.
2: A solid wall, now we close the gates, close the gates. Our strength is unity, close the gates. We've marched across the years through hunger, doubt, and fears. We are the engineers, close the
1: gates, close the gates. We like what you hear? Check gates. out more at laborhistoryin2.com.
4: That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 100 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, and you can also find them use the hashtag #laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website at LaborRadioNetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show.